Hi, everybody. Stuart here. Thanks for tuning in to the iFormerX podcast. iFormerX is an online community of practice for ambulatory care and community-based practitioners. Our goal is to explore the evidence that informs practice and provide evidence-based resources to help you make well-informed patient care and practice management decisions. Most of our listeners already know this, but we publish commentaries about recently published studies and summaries of recently published guidelines. But what some of our members don't know is that we also maintain a series of web pages, which are annotated bibliographies that summarize the key studies, guidelines, and online resources. And each of the resource pages provides links to the original sources. It's a great way to quickly get access to the essential information you need when learning about a therapeutic area like heart failure or a practice management issue like collaborative practice agreements. We currently have 18 resource pages and 14 clinical trials and guidelines pages, and each page is maintained and periodically updated by a content expert who ensures that the information is timely, accurate, and authoritative. So in this episode, I've invited two of our content experts to explain a bit more about their resource page what key information is included on their page, and how the resource page could be used to improve your practice or when working with learners like students and residents. And joining me today are Dr. Alex Mills and Dr. Jordan Rowe, who created and maintain our newest resource page about gender-affirming care. Alex is one of my colleagues here at the University of Mississippi and he's developed training programs about gender identity, gender dysphoria, and gender-affirming hormone therapy. And Jordan is on faculty at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and practices in the endocrinology and LGBTQ specialty clinic at University Health, which many of you may know as Truman Medical Center. Alex wrote a commentary for iFormerX and participated in a podcast a few years ago. So welcome back, Alex. And Jordan, it's awesome to have you here as first-time contributor. Welcome. Thanks, Stuart. Really glad to be here and happy to talk about this awesome guide we made. Definitely excited to be here and I can't wait to get started. So before we talk about the resource page that the two of you created, I'm wondering what got you interested in this practice area? I realize that everyone who works in healthcare should be knowledgeable about and sensitive to gender identity. If we're going to develop trusting relationships with patients we serve, we simply must address people using their preferred names and pronouns. But clearly, the two of you have gone above and beyond, and you are passionate about this topic. You've given presentations. You teach students and colleagues about how to provide gender-affirming care. What's the source of that passion? Was there a particular incident or a patient that got you started on on this journey? Yeah, I'll kind of share my story first. My real interest in this space, serving transgender and gender diverse folks, then is around stigma. So stigma for me both fascinates and downright terrifies me. And I've always gravitated towards serving stigmatized groups. So people with HIV, those who are LGBTQIA+, even diabetes, right? Modern medicine makes these conditions pretty simple to manage from a medical standpoint, but it's all these stressors that stigmatized groups experience that lead to all of the discrimination and just making people feel less than and preventing anyone from trusting someone with their health. 
So for transgender and gender diverse folks specifically, we're going beyond just a health condition. It's really that entire human condition and helping someone feel comfortable in their own skin. It's definitely something that's, quote, new for some clinicians to help affirm someone's gender, but that experience for the person's not new. And as society, we've been taught as a healthcare professional that we should be trusted as someone that the patient can see to get help. But unfortunately, we know that's not always the case. And there's a lot of things that can get in the way that go well beyond just this resource guide. You know, I remember my first patient in my gender health clinic that I counseled on masculinizing therapy. They waited years for a clinician to affirm their gender identity. And, and this patient just shed the happiest tears with me when they realized that they were finally going to get that first injection of testosterone and move towards that journey. There's so much more we could talk about with this, but I think really to simplify it, it's just that all persons should benefit from person-centered care. And this is really the first step. And I want to echo everything that Alex said, especially about the joy and the relief that patients have when they realize that something as simple as having their name used correctly. My personal path into providing gender-affirming care started with initiatives at my practice site where we were working on ways to be more inclusive and intentionally become a safe space for all members of the LGBT community. But then about four years ago, myself and some of my other providers in the clinic thought, wow, Casey would be really awesome place for an interprofessional LGBT clinic. The closest one is Chicago for us, which is pretty far away. And our hospital was already providing many of these services to patients from hundreds of miles around. So why not go ahead and formalize it and make sure that we are actively promoting the fact that we are inclusive of this patient group. So from there, we went about building a clinic that could meet those patient needs. And one of those that was very quickly identified was that need for gender affirming care services which included hormone management, but definitely extends beyond that. Everything that I learned about gender-affirming care just really made me even more passionate to be able to provide that in a high-quality way to our patients and make sure that we are providing that care in a safe environment. And I guess the rest is history. Yeah, so Alex, let's talk about the resource page that you created for iFormerX. The, the page is entitled, cleverly enough, gender-affirming care, and it's intended to provide the busy practitioner with a succinct summary of some of the key studies and guidelines, as well as provide links to a few essential online resources. Tell us a bit more about the page, what's included on your page, how it's organized, and how did you decide what should be included on the page? I think when we were both going through this together, you know, we thought about the resources included on this guide as a way to provide essentially a frequently asked questions section of a website. So what are the common questions that come up in the healthcare needs of transgender and gender diverse folks? And what's the evidence that backs that up? Are there certain dosage forms or routes of administration that work better, like subcutaneous testosterone, for example? And what's the procedure when a patient on gender affirming hormone therapy like estrogen is hospitalized and undergoing surgery? So we tried to make those resources easily available, and it also served as an indirect way for us to combat a lot of misinformation and disinformation related to the safety of gender-affirming care. So Jordan and I, with this guide, can combat those dangers in an objective way by evaluating and disseminating current evidence and help clinicians see through that noise, then that's another objective that's achieved by curating the literature found. 
utilizers of the guide are also going to find important data on masculinizing therapy versus feminizing therapy, along with what's the current literature on the effects of gender-affirming hormone therapy on mental health, fertility, and many others. So Jordan, many of our listeners might not be aware that there are several clinical practice guidelines that have been published related to gender identity, gender dysphoria, and gender-affirming hormone therapy. You list three of the most important ones on your resource page. Can you give us a brief summary of these guidelines and how they're different and how they might be used by practitioners? I see all three of these guidelines as complementary to each other. They all have their strengths and places where they may be a better fit. They all do align on very foundational things like general strategies for gender-affirming hormone therapy, safety monitoring parameters, as well as on best practices for creating an affirming clinical environment. Where I see them being different is based more on who their target audience is and when they were last updated. So the guidelines from the Endocrine Society were last comprehensively updated in 2017, and they are very much focused on an endocrinologist perspective of hormone therapy. They don't really dive into as much detail on affirming practices outside of hormone therapy compared to the other two guidelines. And at one point, they were the only of the three guidelines that really offered specifics on dosing strategies and dosage forms of medications. The other two guidelines now utilize what originally came from the endocrine guidelines and essentially refer directly to the dosing tables from the endocrine society. The UCSF guidelines, which were last comprehensively updated in 2016, they are very much a user-friendly, quickly find what you need kind of user interface that operates more as a web page versus having the publication structure that we maybe typically think of as a guideline. Although they do have one master document where everything is compiled into one PDF. The information in these guidelines is complete, but doesn't necessarily offer the level of depth or detail or dive into the nitty-gritty of clinical trials and evidence like the WPATH or the Endocrine Society guidelines do. They also go a lot more broadly into non-hormone gender-affirming care compared to the Endo Society guidelines and provide guidance on things like vocal therapies and interventions, surgical interventions, and even general adult health preventative care like cancer screenings. And then lastly, we've got the WPATH guidelines, which were updated in fall of 2022. These, in my mind, are the most comprehensive and detailed of the three guidelines. They really dive deep into more than 1,500 references that are used to create this document. They draw from the other two guidelines, especially those dosing and, and medication information from the Endocrine Society guidelines. But they're also by far the newest. So they bring forward some of the new evidence that wasn't available at the time of the other two guidelines publication. The information covered in WPATH spans also from gender-affirming care in children, in adolescents, and as well adults. They also talk about details of medical and surgical interventions, mental health and social support, and so much more. I found that I use the WPATH guidelines most frequently when I have specific questions about evidence behind a certain service or therapy, whereas I gravitate towards the Indo Society guidelines 
which is much more targeted and shorter on day-to-day basis for making dose adjustments or just monitoring medications. Well, Alex, I, I was intrigued by the fact that you included an entire section on your resource page dedicated to cancer and cardiovascular health. Why? What are the unique needs and concerns in this patient population? This is a definite area of need and concern for our our trans and gender diverse folks. We've only recently seen some long-term data on the health needs for trans and gender diverse persons, the need for better information on the long-term effects of hormone therapy on cardiovascular health or cancer risk remains high priority for both patients and their clinicians. So when it relates to cancer, the initial concern that if I were to give a patient exogenous sex hormones, am I increasing their chances for a hormone-sensitive cancer, so breast cancer being in front of mind? The recent data shows there's a slightly higher risk, but it's less than we see in their cisgender counterparts. And cardiovascular health introduced a whole other layer to gender-affirming care, especially when we think about risk, because historically, we weigh this differently based off of natal sex. So we have some data on the risk for cardiovascular events in trans folks, but we definitely need more. So ultimately, the challenge to better answer these questions is trying to make sure that we have current literature and that the future research collects information on gender identity and is inclusive for our transgender folks for us to get that better picture. Okay, one last question for you both. Who do you envision using your resource page and and how might they use it? So I would say in its current form, I envision this guide is really like this higher order peripheral brain or toolkit that's enabling pharmacists, clinicians, learners to make informed decisions when caring for or being consulted on gender affirming care needs for someone who's transgender. We're always performing that risk first benefit analysis when we're selecting pharmacotherapy. So we're hoping that this enhances the patient care process for a population whose care is frequently hindered by the quote, we don't have the data. So more and more data is certainly going to become available. And with us being able to update this guide as practice evolves, utilizers of the guide will continue to benefit. So if our guide can help any pharmacist feel more confident that they're providing the best evidence-based care or recommendation, then mission accomplished. I'd say we also hope and already have plans for this resource to continue to grow both to reflect those new updates in publications, as Alex mentioned, but also to expand to include more relevant content for pharmacists in a variety of practice settings. So maybe some pharmacists might initially think, I'm not providing gender-affirming care directly. I don't really need this resource guide. And I hope instead this can shed light on how that's not really the case. And this is a relevant subject for all pharmacists. For example, Having a community pharmacist who is knowledgeable about the practical needs surrounding gender-affirming hormone therapy, things like appropriate syringe sizes for injections or ways to triage common barriers like day supply issues, that can be just as impactful, and I'd argue in some scenarios maybe even more impactful in improving overall patient care. And lastly, I'd say that I, I hope this page can serve anyone who just wants to know more about best practices for providing care to the transgender and gender diverse community. We can all contribute to making the healthcare system a more inclusive and affirming place. And learning more about gender affirming care is just one of the ways that a pharmacist could do that. Well, Jordan, Alex, thanks for being on the iForm Works podcast today and, and for 
creating the gender affirming care resource page. If you haven't taken a look at the resource pages and the clinical trials and guideline pages that we have posted on the iFormerX website, I encourage you to check them out by clicking on the links in the upper navigation bar. The, the page managers have assembled everything in one location, all the key clinical trials, guidelines, online patient education materials that you might need. If you're expanding your practice to serve a new patient population or want to improve the quality of the care that you provide, our resource pages are a great place to start. And before we sign off today, I want to thank Tomas Yorga from the VA Ann Arbor Healthcare System in Michigan for maintaining our heart failure page. Tomas is a clinical pharmacy specialist in cardiology, and I've turned to him to peer review some of the cardiology-related materials submitted to iFormerX over the past few years. He's recently participated in an ACCP AmCare PRN podcast, which we posted here on iFormerX, about some of the latest developments in the treatment of dyslipidemia. And I know Tomas is spreading the word to his VA colleagues and residents about what a great resource iFormerX is. So thank you, Tomas for being an awesome iFormerX supporter and contributor and using your considerable knowledge and expertise to enhance this community of practice. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off.